This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. This week, the late rapper Tupac Shakur would have turned 52 years old. He was killed in 1996 at the age of 25. And over the decades, a flurry of books and documentaries have been created and written about his short life and the way he used rap lyrics to convey messages about the world around him. Come on, come on. I see no changes. Wake up in the morning and I ask myself, is life worth living? Should I blast myself? I'm tired of being born, even worse, I'm black. My stomach hurts, so I'm looking for a purse to snatch. That's the song Changes by Tupac Shakur. Writer Santi Elijah Holly wanted to delve even deeper into the family behind Tupac and what made him an electrifying presence and the voice of a generation. In his new book, An American Family, The Shakurs and the Nation They Created, Holly explores the complex legacy of the Shakur family and the different factions of the Black nationalist movement in which they were a part. Holly is a journalist and historian. His essays, reviews, and journalism have appeared in various publications, including The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The Los Angeles Times, and Vice. He is a recipient of the 2022 National Arts and Entertainment Journalism Award and a 2020 Penn America grant. His first book, Murder Ballots, was published in November of 2020. Santi Elijah Holly, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you know, this is not a book about Tupac but he was the spark for you. What got you interested in knowing more about his family? Yeah, he absolutely was the spark. I mean, I, I'm i an old Tupac fan from the 90s, and you know, when I listened to him back then, uh, I don't think I really listened that deeply to his lyrics. I just was more about the energy and and, and just the, the, the raw talents he had. But in later years, as I got older and I sort of formed a career that was uh, writing about the intersection of social justice issues and racial justice issues and art, um, I began looking more closely at Tupac's lyrics and I realized how how prophetic he was, how prescient he was, and how intelligent he was. Um, and the things that he was talking about, he's addressing uh, police brutality, income inequality, and I, I was just blown away. So I wanted to know more about why he was so intelligent, how he learned all these things. And I looked more at his his upbringing, his childhood, and his mother, especially Afeni Shakur, former Black Panther. And uh, as I learned more about her, I realized that there was more stories to be told. And, and I learned more about uh, Tupac's stepfather, Matulu, and his work um, you know, back in the 70s and everybody else. And I just learned this rich history that I felt like hadn't been told completely. And so for me, I just felt like I wanted to learn more for myself about this family, this remarkable family and their history. But I wasn't, I was coming up against a lot of brick walls or a lot of misinformation. And so I just sort of took it upon myself to say, I'm going to be the one that I think, you know, really needs to tell this story. Because I feel like there's a lot of people like myself that want to know this history too and can benefit from this history. The Shakur surname came from a follower and associate of Malcolm X, James Costin Sr., who changed his name to Saladin Shakur after Malcolm X was assassinated in 1965. Can you briefly tell us about him? Yeah, he was a uh, he was an associate of Malcolm X. Um, he converted to uh, to to Islam to Sunni Islam and wanted to carry on the work that Malcolm X had begun, especially after Malcolm X was assassinated in '65. And so Saladin Shakur, by taking the name and by converting, and also he was a Pan African leader and he was just a mentor to young people. And 
people look to him to sort of carry on that work. And there's a lot of people who are still trying to carry on the work and sort of and, and honor the legacy of Malcolm X. And Saladin Shakur, by virtue of being older and being an associate of Malcolm, uh, young people looked up to him and, and, and as a father figure. And so people did take the name Shakur from themselves in sort of honor of Saladin Shakur because they wanted to say, you know, we're with you on this ride and we want to learn about Islam. We want to learn about black nationalism. And that was what the name sort of represented for, for this younger generation, but beginning with Saladin, obviously. This new beginning of a movement, when Malcolm X was assassinated, the Black Panther Party stepped in to fill that void. Um, but everyone, as you mentioned, who took the surname Shakur was not related. How did people actually become a part of the family? The Shakur family, as we uh, think about families, it's not a traditional family of like blood relatives or, or by birth. It's by honoring the commitment, taking the name Shakur, you're saying, I'm committing myself to the movement and to the movement for, for the freedom of black people in America. And you didn't take the name lightly. When people took the name Shakur, um, it was stating a very clear, very intentional act of saying, I'm committing myself to this family. I'm aligning myself with them. Uh, and I'm committed for the rest of my life to this this cause, the cause of black freedom. Um, some people in the Shakur family were Shakurs by birth. Uh, Saladin's sons, uh, Lumumba and Zaid, they were uh, Saladin's sons, but they also changed their names later to Shakur. So they weren't born Shakur, but they later became Shakur. And many people in the family did take the name Shakur later, and that was a very intentional you know, process that you just did not take lightly. You focus primarily on six Shakurs, uh, many of whom became infamous in the late 70s and early 80s for taking the Black Panther ideology even further, and in some instances, very violent territory. There's Saladin, as you mentioned, the head of the family, his two sons, Zaid and Lumumba. There's Matulu and Asada Shakur. And then there's Afeni Shakur, who was Tupac's mother. Most of them began as members and leaders of the Black Panther Party. You focus on, though, their presence on the East Coast in New York. We mostly talk about the Black Panther Party as it relates to the West Coast and Oakland more specifically. Yeah, that's something I was actually surprised to learn in working on this book is that, like you say, like most of us are familiar with the Black Panthers in the in the West Coast and especially Oakland with Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. But there is Black Panther chapters all over the country and in New York uh, in particular, the Panthers had a sort of different ideology. They had a different way of doing their own thing. You know, they might be more militant. They might be more focused on going out in the streets and helping community members like around them. Uh, the West Coast was very much more, I don't know, they, they, I, they're Marxist-Leninist. They had an economic idea and framework. But New York was just, uh, they had their own thing going. And it, and it caused a lot of uh, fractions between the two different, between the two different coasts. Um, but the, Sal- the Shakurs, yeah, they were very much, I mean, they were born and raised in New York. Uh, many of them were. And that was their... There's their mindset is New York and what does New York City need in particular. Um, and so a lot of them were were often clashing with other Panthers and other chapters, especially in the West Coast, because they had different, obviously they had different needs. Their community had different needs. And so they addressed those needs, but it didn't always work into what the, the Central Committee, especially Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, it didn't really always uh, align with what they you know envisioned for the party. For a generation coming of age in the 90s, we first learned about Afeni Shakur through her son, Tupac. Um, Her song, Dear Mama, lays out his love and admiration for her, but also 
um, touches on the realities of having a mother who suffered from drug addiction. Let's listen to a little bit. When I was young, me and my mama had beef, 17 years old, kicked out on the streets. Though back at the time, I never thought I'd see a face. Ain't a woman alive that could take my mama's place. Suspended from school, I'm scared to go home. I was a fool with the big boys breaking all the rules. Shed tears with my baby sister. Over the years, we was poor than other little kids. And even though we had different daddies, the same drama when things went wrong, we blamed mama. I reminisce on the stress I caused. It was hell, hugging on my mama from a jail cell. In elementary, hey, I see the penitentiary one day. Running from the police, that's right. Mama catch me, put a whoop into my backside. And even as a crack fiend, mama, you always was a black queen, mama. I finally understand for a woman, it ain't easy trying to raise a man. You always was committed, a poor single mother on welfare. Tell me how you did it, there's no way I can pay you back. But the plan is to show you that I understand. You all appreciate it. That was Tupac Shakur's song, Dear Mama, which came out in 1995. Santi, this was a beloved song, really an anthem in many ways, but it only encapsulated a small sliver of who Afeni was. Can you share a little bit about her origins and how she found her way to the Black Panther Party? Yeah, that song is uh, the way that a lot of us, you know, old Tupac fans, that's all that we knew of Afeni, um, was through that song. And so it was really a pleasure to, for me personally to learn about her story. Um, you know, she had a rough childhood, single mother, poverty. Um, she was running with street gangs and uh, dabbling in drugs and uh, just sort of trying to find her way. And then she happened upon uh, Bobby Steele, who was a chairman of the, of the Black Panther Party, who was visiting Harlem at the time to sort of as sort of recruitment and support for Huey Newton. Uh, and she heard Bobby Seale speak and she was just immediately captivated by just his presence. And so she uh, she decided to go to the, the local Harlem Black Panther chapter and sign up. And then she soon after that met Lamumba Shakur, who was Saladin's son. And she was just struck by him and his presence. And just she was just these were people who were so dedicated and so passionate and so loving for the community. Some of the work she did, though, um, with some of the work that we know about the Panthers, she recruited and trained new members. She helped launch the party's free breakfast for school children program. She helped tenants organize rent strikes against landlords. Um, This militancy also came with deep community work. Yeah, and I think a lot of times people just think about the Black Panthers as shotgun holding, you know, black beret wearing. But no, like a lot of what they did was just community work, sort of uncelebrated, just daily community work, buying groceries for people or helping helping uh, people carry their groceries upstairs if they're elderly, uh, feeding school children, uh, sickle cell anemia testing for the community. Um, just these sort of just urgent and immediate needs that the community needed. These are the sort of less celebrated things that the Black Panthers did. And Afeni and Lumumba and the other Shakurs and the other Black Panthers um, yeah, they did all these things that were just sort of almost bureaucratic, you know, just jobs that really weren't celebrated, but they were just every bit as part of serving the community as self-defense and, and everything else that we, you know, associate with the Black Panthers. You mentioned she got caught up in um, this infamous trial, 1969. She and several members of what was known as the Panther 21 were indicted on 
conspiracy to shoot police officers and bomb police stations, railroad tracks, department stores, even the New York Botanical Garden in the Bronx. What was Afeni's suspected role in this plot? She was just suspected of plotting these things, uh, not not necessarily taking part in them herself, but plotting, uh, planting bombs and dynamite in certain locations. Uh, And so 21 Panthers in New York were indicted on conspiracy with different roles, whether or not they were going to be the ones who were planting the bombs or just arranging where they would be dropped off. So she every, it was just a mass raid, a mass roundup of Panthers um, by the NYPD. And some of the Panthers escaped. Some were uh, granted youthful uh, exemptions. Um, but m- most of the Panthers were in jail for up to two years. The trial was eight months, but uh, it was just sort of a. It was at the time when the many different law enforcement agencies were panicking about the Black Panthers. They didn't know what to do, and so they would just conduct these early morning or late night raids, and then they'd worry about the charges later. You mm-hmm. know, they would say, "Oh, we heard." You know, we they we, they had they had undercover uh, detectives who were infiltrating the Black Panthers all across the country, and so in Harlem there was two undercover agents, undercover detectives who would later testify that they heard, you know, some of these Panther leaders, Lumumba and Afeni uh, and others, plotting to do these things. You know, that's all the evidence they had, but they would round them up, arrest them, indict them, and then worry about the evidence later. Afeni was 23 years old at the time. She represented herself in court. And that was when she also found out that she was pregnant with, with Tupac. Yeah, she uh, she represented herself. Uh, she had no legal training, no legal background whatsoever. But she that's the kind of person she was. She was very headstrong, uh, and she thought that nobody else could uh, speak for her the way that she could um, because, you know, there was there – was, uh, the Black Panthers had their own defense, legal counsel, but Afeni, she just wasn't impressed with what they had to say. So she just said, I'm going to do it myself, and I'm going to speak for myself. Um, and she – she did all that work, and then she was she was bailed out. So you know the bail was so high that only a couple Panthers could be bailed uh, at a time through through donations by supporters. So Feeney was the first because she was such a dynamic speaker that you know they trusted her to go out there and give speeches to to supporters to try to raise more more uh, bail funds. And uh, one month after her acquittal and all the other Panthers' acquittal is when she gave birth to her her first son, who, who would become Tupac. Yeah. During one of uh, the cross-examinations, Afeni actually cross-examined one of the undercover officers that you mentioned had heard her and others speaking about these plots. Um, And she actually got them to admit that they'd never seen her commit any of the bombings or shootings that she had been charged with uh, conspiring to do. Can I have you read her closing statement to the jury, which um, you write was spoken off the cuff. She kind of just came up with it as she was standing there, um, but it was inspired by Fidel Castro's 1953 Will History Absolve Me courtroom speech. So why are we here? Why are any of us here? I don't know. But I would appreciate it if you would end this nightmare, because I'm tired of it and I can't justify it in my mind. There's no logical reason for us to have gone through the last two years as we have. So do what you have to do. But please don't forget what you saw and heard in this courtroom. Let history record you as a jury that would not kneel to the outrageous bidding of the state. Show us that we were not wrong in assuming that you would judge us fairly. And remember that that's all that we're asking of you. All we ask of you is that you judge us fairly. Please judge us according to the way that you want to be judged. 
That was Afeni Shakur's closing argument speech, which was largely ad-libbed, and it took the jury about 45 minutes of deliberation to come back with an acquittal. And you write, this was at the time the longest and most expensive trial in New York State history, um, costing almost a million dollars, something like 750K. How did, how did the trial, uh, if anything, change the way police handled or prosecuted cases in New York? I mean, this was, yeah, this was a case that really showed the state and just law enforcement, just the, the way that the, 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 the desperation, uh, it really showed the world and the desperation that they were trying, that they, that they had to crush these, the Panthers and other sort of black liberation groups that were, that were forming. Uh, and, and the fact that they failed in this, that they, that, that the, the defendants were acquitted, you know, it was it was humbling for the state and for law enforcement, but it was also humbling for the Panthers themselves. I mean, they both sort of, it, even though the, the the Panthers won, you know, or I mean, the the, the victory was came at a big cost because it really decimated the, the the Panthers. I mean, financially, a lot of them just felt, you know, they'd been in jail for two years, and now, you know, they lost so much and they couldn't just go back to their lives. Um, so it really just it it. it no, there weren't really any clear victors in this. Even though you know the Panthers were free to go, it really it was the, the end of this particular chapter. And, and many Pan- and many Black Panthers sort of realized that um, that they could be infiltrated, you know, by by special agents, by undercover detectives, and because of that, uh, that's sort of where you see the Black Liberation Army start to come fold because that's they were like, you know, we have to go underground. We can't be up here doing the work. For all to see, we can't be putting ourselves up there, and so the BLA were committed to just being anonymous, being completely underground. Uh, and then, since they were underground, they would take part in sort of bolder and more militant and often more violent actions. And then, law enforcement itself would come down harder on the people who are suspected of, you know, perpetrating these events uh, and these acts. So it really, it's, it 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 really changed the course of of what was happening at the time and this whole trial was very formative and that's what that's why I opened the the book with this trial because it, it feels like it really does sort of set the tone for everything to come and everything you know everybody that how they reacted was a response to this trial Santi I want to get into uh the Black Liberation Army but first I want to talk a little bit about Afeni and how she evolved over time um, while Afeni was incarcerated at what was known as the Women's House of Detention in New York's uh, Greenwich Village, she formed a connection with the Gay Liberation Front. Can you tell us a little bit about what you learned about that relationship? Yeah, when she was incarcerated and when she was detained, uh, members of the Gay Liberation Front would come out and support, just protesting outside uh, the Women's House of Detention, um, helping her inside with fresh clothes, with food, um, and she formed a bond with people who were inside who were, who were gay women who were incarcerated there. She really learned about this other movement, which she hadn't really been, um, hadn't been um, you know, aware of or she hadn't really been introduced to, but their support was so strong to her, I think that the fact that they showed up day after day for her and for, for Joan Bird, another Panther 21 defendant, um, that when she finally was uh, acquitted and when she was free, she recognized like this was a strong community that she hadn't really known about, and she wanted she wanted to speak for them 
and support them in any way that she could too. And she formed really close friendships with people who were who were you know gay women who really weren't part of the Black Liberation Movement, but they're you know more part of the the rising gay movement. And she saw an opportunity just to sort of bring these two causes together because I feel like there's a lot of division or at least not an awareness between these two causes. Let's take a short break. Our guest today is Santi Elijah Holly, author of the book An American Family, The Shakurs and the Nation They Created. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. In this country... Some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. I'm Anne-Marie Baldonado of Fresh Air, back with another plug for our Fresh Air Plus bonus episodes. The Tony Awards aired this past Sunday, and to celebrate the best performances in American theater, we listened back to an interview with playwright Arthur Miller. It seems to me the whole United States is engaged in selling. But as it turns out, most of the world recognizes what's at the bottom of that idea. Uh, Willie is trying to become great without being great, which is what most of us are doing or dreaming about doing. Miller spoke with Terry Gross in 1987. Bonus episodes with unexpected archival highlights like this are one of the benefits of a Fresher Plus subscription, which gives you sponsor-free podcasts, too. If you're not a member yet, it's easy to join. Find out more at plus.npr.org. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. And if you're just joining us today, our guest is Santi Elijah Holly, author of the book An American Family, The Shakurs and the Nation They Created, which delves into the complex story of the Shakurs, a self-defined family known over generations, first as part of the Black Liberation Movement and later through rapper Tupac Shakur. You know, Santi, it's important to note that while the Shakurs were Black nationalists, as your book lays out, they did not share a single consistent vision of Black liberation. And this actually became clear with the unraveling of the Black Panther Party and then the formation, as we've been talking about, of the Black Liberation Army. Can you briefly share how the Black Liberation Army was formed? It was, it was very loosely organized. It was, a, it was a group of people who were... A lot, of, a lot of BLA members were former Panthers who were disillusioned with what had happened to the party, just the infiltration, the infighting. And they believed that the next step would be to start just to strike first. I mean, not not so much self-defense, but actually uh, wage guerrilla warfare against, you know, the American system, which was, which looked like um, 
shooting police officers, robbing banks, or they would call it expropriation of, of funds from banks to fund the revolution. They believed that they were, the revolution was imminent and that they were going to lead it by, by striking against these American symbols of power. And so they, you know, there are BLA cells all throughout the country. New York really did have the most activity, at least the most accused uh, police killings that were traced back eventually to different people who were uh, associated with BLA. But they also went throughout different states and they would travel and they were trying to set up uh, places that would be a homestead for them or training grounds. They looked at other revolutions happening across the, the world in Africa and Asia um, and they wanted to recreate that of forming these guerrilla units. The robbing of banks, though, I mean, you paint the picture that they were saying. What did you call it? Expropriation. But there was also something else happening. I mean, they had a lot of allies, many of the members, when they were members of the Black Panther Party. Um, but as they became more radical, they became more desperate for cash because that type of infusion of cash from supporters just wasn't there. That's a great point. Yeah, the Black Panther Party could count on supporters, leftists, progressive supporters, even white, you know, white supporters, celebrities would give them money. The Black Panther Party support themselves um, on a lot of donations. I mean, they had the newspaper, but mostly it was donations. And BLA, you know, they didn't have that luxury of asking for support for what they were doing. And everything was self-funded. And so they had to, they had to raise money for ammunition, for guns, for getaway cars, for uh, safe houses, they also wanted land in the South that they could retreat to and maybe build up eventually. Um, but mostly it was just immediate needs, like we need getaway cars, safe houses, and things like that. And the only way that, to get that money, that, that kind of money, was to rob banks. And they also robbed uh, drug dealers, like well-known drug dealers, late-night social clubs. They would raid those and, and rob everybody in there. And they, and they, they believed that these places were harming the community, were, you know, were killing the community. And so it was, they were deserving of being robbed and giving the money back to the community, people who need it. I think they talked themselves in circles trying to justify, you know, what they were doing. These actions were revolutionary rather than just criminal. Yeah. But, you know, that's, that's what they really believed and they were young. And I think that they just got in over their heads because they really, they really saw, you know, what was happening in their, in their community and to the people. And they wanted to do something and they were tired of just waiting and they were tired of being arrested and they were just like, well, this is this is a war. And they treated it as if now this is a war that, that we are fighting. Yeah, I mean, they would go on to be known as as the deadliest black militant organization in United States history. But some questions that you actually pose to the reader is whether the young people who were drawn to the movement were motivated by maybe the party's Marxist rhetoric and abstract political theory, or by these media accounts that kind of you know painted them as these sunglasses-wearing anarchists who were out to kill all the devils by any means necessary. Basically, did they sign up to serve or to wage warfare against police? I'm wondering where you came along those lines, or have you even thought about this in this way? I have, and I think it's, you know, people were really taken by the media portrayal and just the excitement, the sort of adventurism. I mean, even in the Black Panther Party, there were people in the party who were there for just the, uh, you know, the guns and the adventurism and um, wanted to go out and shoot, you know, shoot police officers. And uh, so in the BLA, it was, I think that was the people who really formed a core membership. I don't know if there's anybody 
in my opinion, who was in the BLA because they wanted to do, you know, quiet community work like, you know, serving breakfast to people. They were done with that. They, they had tried that. It didn't work out quickly enough for them or whatever they thought was going to happen didn't happen. And they were just angry and they had no place to put their anger. And I think it's, it's enticing if you're just witnessing people being oppressed and harassed all the time. And then there's a secret group that comes around and, you know, they want you to join their secret group and get, they'll give you a gun and you'll go on these adventures and you'll, you know, but also with the framework of the belief that you're doing something revolutionary. I mean, those two things are very uh, enticing and very appealing to somebody who's young and just doesn't really know where to direct their 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 rage. Yeah. I mean, I learned about them as a child, um, kind of as a cautionary tale, like don't get too radical, don't veer too far off. This is what could happen. Is that what you learned? It's, a lot of this book uh, is a cautionary tale of not just don't get too wrapped up and don't get too carried away with this type of revolution or this type of struggle, but also look out for you know the various ways that the government or that law enforcement will repress you know these movements and, and the various covert and secretive ways that that they will shut it down. And there's a lot of caution to be seen in all these stories. You know, just like you really have to have the community support. It's not as uh, exciting maybe to to slowly build community support for what you're doing. And I think the Panthers, and, and at the best, that's what they're trying to do, is build community support before, you know, striking out, before the self-defense, before the guns. You really have to have the, the support of your community before you do all these things. And I think that's really where the BLA, um, the biggest thing that they, they did wrong was they, I think they just did not think about how they were going to be perceived by their own people, you know, by the community, the people who they, they were they were professing to serve, they didn't have their support. And so if you don't have the support of the community, you're not going to win your revolution. Our guest today is Santi Elijah Holly, author of the book An American Family, The Shakurs and the Nation They Created. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series about people's futures and how they can be reimagined. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org slash elections. This is Fresh Air, and if you're just joining us today, we're talking to Santi Elijah Holly, author of the new book titled An American Family, The Shakurs and the Nation They Created. In the book, Holly delves into the complex story of the Shakurs, a self-defined family known over generations first as part of the Black Liberation Movement and later through rapper Tupac Shakur. 
Santi, you write that Afeni raised Tupac to be, I guess, the black prince of the the revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, Tupac was the chairman of the New African Panthers, which was a youth organization that wanted to carry on the work of the Black Panther Party. And you write that Tupac was very close to leaving music behind to follow this path. Before he even got his start in his career as a rapper, he and he was going through a lot of personal struggles with poverty and with his mother's addiction. And he was looking for any opportunity um, just to, to escape that. But he was raised, like you said, his, his, his mother, Afeni, literally said, you know, that he was going to become the black prince of the revolution. He was going to carry on the fight that they started. He was going to take the mantle and continue the work um, as, a, as a spokesperson, as a leader, as an activist. But he's also, you know, he's just a kid who just, he, lo- he loved rap. I mean, rap music was pretty new and he loved it and he, he was talented at it from the beginning. But his early raps... Uh, starting in Baltimore and then after he moved to Marin City, his early raps were very much, he's talking about Black Panthers. He's talking about movement stuff that nobody else was really talking about. And rap was still pretty new, but nobody was going into, you know, really intricacies of, of Black liberation. And he knew all his history. And so that's what he was rapping about. But he wasn't having any, any real success. He was winning some little, like, local award shows and competitions. And, you know, he had his little rap crews. But he wasn't making any money off of it. And by the time he was in Marin City, he was crashing on couches, homeless a lot of times, you know, having to scrounge for food, really struggling. And uh, he met up with some people, some movement elders who really encouraged him to go in this direction of, okay, well, let's come back to that. You can, you can still rap, but your focus has to be on, you know, we have to sort of get the youth back to having this interest in, in, these, in these topics and these issues. You know, we have to, like, bring the youth back in. And so these elders were going to coach Tupac and how to do that with with music and just with just being the chairman of the New African Panthers, which was a, a you know, a new group based in Atlanta. And Tupac was, he was at that crossroads. He was like, I'm going to go either, if I don't really make it with rap, if I don't make any money with rap, I'm going to move to Atlanta and, and really, this, and yeah. really focus on just being the, the chairman of the, the, the Panthers, selling newspapers, you know, recruiting young people to this organization. Um, Almost at the zero hour, he received a call from Digital Underground's manager, Natron Gregory, who was D- Digital Underground, the, the sort of party rap group of the 90s. And they said, okay, you know, we want to hire you. You have some skills. You're really hungry. So uh, we'll take you on, but just as a dancer and a, and a roadie for now. We can come on tour with us. We'll give you some money. So Tupac really – then all of a sudden he's, he's on stage and he's dancing and he's, you know – sort of a minor celebrity just with the group but then he starts rapping and then starts getting even more attention and i mean even his early raps he still talks a lot about social issues and racial issues and economic issues and but he's you see him sort of after the first album you see him starting kind of drift away from it a little bit because he now he's a celebrity he's a you know now he's a movie star also and so he's and it was it also about success because he, he could be more successful talking about other things, not talking about black liberation. He, in a lot of ways, you know, he, he thought that he needed to have the sort of more commercially viable songs, the sort of party anthems and everything to draw people in, to draw listeners in. Because, if, you know, like if you are um, a, just a, a political rapper, and that's all you do, you're, you're going to lose a lot of your audience, um, at least the audience that he was trying to connect with. He wanted everybody, he wanted young black men from wherever they came from, you know, like cities and you know, just on both coasts, uh, people who were, in, you know, suffering from poverty. He just wanted, he wanted to, to reach them 
where they were, and then bring them in, and then and then hit them with you know something a little deeper, a little more introspective, a little more historical. But you couldn't just do that. You had, so we had to do both at the same time. So you saw that sort of um, back and forth a little bit in his early records. But then it was it was so conflicting for him because he really did still want to stay true to you know he he really did still think that he wanted to he didn't want to disappoint his mother uh, in 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 leading this charge and and really carrying on the movement. But he also, he liked the attention, he liked the celebrity. Uh, and so he had to sort of, he struggled with both of those at the same time within him his, throughout his, the rest of his life. You know, Tupac's plan was to to still be an activist, but through music. And as you said, we can listen to his music now and we hear those messages, especially as you get older, there's a deeper understanding. But for me, his music also speaks to the contradictions of Tupac and his mother, Afeni, and the movement itself, this violence and misogyny intertwined with these messages of love and determination and liberation and community. How do you reconcile that? Tupac was just, he was a young man who faced a lot of trauma growing up. I mean, he faced trauma of growing up with a family that was, that had been um, really pursued by by governmental forces. And he grew up with the trauma of having a mother who was addicted to drugs and he, that came out in his music. That, that sort of trauma and contradiction came out. He wasn't—he was not a perfect person, obviously. I mean, he had many mistakes, he had many flaws, but he did not shy away from those those mistakes and those flaws and those contradictions. You know, he aired those out for everybody. And he was a young man who was living through all this in the public eye. And so every time he contradicted himself, yeah, we all contradict ourselves. We're all human, and in that, he's sort of following in the path work by his mother, who also was this great leader and a great person and a great thinker and very influential, but also had a long struggle with drugs because she was human. And I think that is what makes them more influential and uh, better leaders is to address those shortcomings and address your mistakes and say, look, I'm, I'm, I'm just figuring this out. I mean, my heart's in the right place. I'm going to make mistakes, but you can learn from me and my mistakes what not to do, how to do it better. But the important thing is just to keep going. Um, you know, with a family that faces this kind of pressure and trauma, there's going to be a lot of difficulties and, and road bumps along the ways and contradictions too. For those who were, who were rap fans in the 90s when Tupac Shakur was murdered, there's a lot of pain around Tupac's death. He died at age 25 and he was murdered. You know, a lot of members of the Shakur family were either incarcerated or murdered um, at young ages also. And the murderer was never arrested or never found. You know, the case is still uh, open, uh, his murder case. And when he died, it was it was a blow not only to rap fans, but to people who, like, who did watch him grow up and who did expe- still continue to expect more from him, especially the, the time when he died was a really, really, really challenging time for Tupac. He was, you know, from, from people who I've spoken to who knew him at this time, sounds like he was trying to get away from Death Row music, away from Suge Knight, uh, sort of start over again and, like, get back on the sort of path that he'd started with because he'd gotten so carried away with Death Row, with this one sort of lifestyle that he was promoting. And I think his heart really was... Um, wanting to get back to sort of addressing social issues and social and racial justice issues. And I think he just was cut short before he could get there. You know, he was murdered at a time 
you know, the short amount of time when he was with Death Row Records, when that's 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 not who had his best interests at heart, and it doesn't it didn't really reflect who he was as a person. But how do you reconcile this reality, though, that so many leaders, so many black leaders, it is always this story. They were just leaving something. They were just coming into an awakening. They were just changing their lives. We tell this same story when we think about Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and who knows what you know what they could have accomplished. Uh, I th- and I think people like Tupac and like Malcolm X, who are always growing, who are always challenging themselves, they're always learning more and wanting and wanting to just be better at their at their message and 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 sort of figure out exactly what the best way to get across that message is. And so, yeah, with Malcolm X, he was in a process. He was still developing as a, as a speaker, as a leader. Um, and Tupac had sort of gone astray a little bit. He'd been misdirected for a little while, and he was trying to find his way back. Um, and we don't know, you know, obviously, we don't know what that would have looked like if he had, if if he had not been murdered. You know, Santi, to just tie this back to the title of your book. Um, an American family, the Shakurs and the nation they created. What is the nation they created? How do you define nation when you're thinking about this? Yeah, I mean, the, the nation, a nation does not necessarily have to be a nation state, right? A nation can be a community that's organized by similar uh, religious beliefs or political beliefs or, or you know, ethnicity or whatever. whatever. Like a nation is who your people are and you form, you form together, you unite for a common cause. The Shakurs were a nation. They were a nation and any oppressed peoples in the U.S. are sort of a nation within a nation, right? So the nation that the Shakurs created was this community, this strong community of people who are dedicated to the struggle, to the liberation of black people in America. And like any nation, uh, and sometimes nations fall. Nations rise and they fall and then they rebuild or they don't and they rebuild differently. But a nation is not a permanent thing. And so the nation that they created was anytime you see anybody who's fighting for, you know, liberation, who's fighting for struggle, fighting for the betterment of oppressed people in this country, they are joining this nation, you know, by take, just like by taking the name Shakur. That's, that is saying I'm joining this nation. Santi Elijah Holly, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you so much, Tanya. It's really been an honor and a pleasure to talk to you. That was Santi Elijah Holly, author of the book An American Family, The Shakurs and the Nation They Created. Coming up, John Powers reviews the ninth and final season of the detective drama series Endeavor. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Dive into the chilling new Hulu original series, Under the Bridge, the riveting adaptation of the acclaimed true crime book. Based on shocking true events, Under the Bridge tells the haunting story of a murder that lays bare a small community's darkest secrets. Go deep into the hidden world of the town's tormented teenagers as detectives race to solve the sinister crime. Starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone, Under the Bridge is now streaming with new episodes Wednesdays, only on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. According to Calendar.com, the average person schedules just 4.5 hours per year on finances. Mass Mutual gets it. Life is busy. If you can't find time to plan your financial future, find someone who can. 
like a mass mutual financial professional. For the last 170 years, they've helped people plan for retirement, college tuition, and any other short or long-term financial goals. Learn more at massmutual.com. This is Fresh Air. In the British crime series Endeavor, Sean Evans plays a younger version of Inspector Morse, the popular TV detective played by John Thaw. The show's final season premieres Sunday on PBS's Masterpiece Mystery. Our critic at large, John Powers, has watched all 36 episodes and says that Endeavor is one of the rare prequels that was worth being made. We're living in hard times for originality. These days, both studio execs and audiences appear to mistrust anything they don't already know. They favor movies and TV shows that keep recycling popular characters and situations. And this isn't only true of mega-franchises like Star Wars or the so-called Marvel Cinematic Universe. Consider the British crime series Inspector Morse, which ran from 1987 to 2000. Based on novels by Colin Dexter and starring the charismatically grumpy John Thaw, that series was so beloved it engendered nine seasons of Lewis, a spin-off about Morse's boring sidekick that ended in 2015. It also spawned a far better prequel, Endeavor, whose ninth and final season is airing on PBS's Masterpiece Mystery. Starring an excellent Sean Evans, Endeavor is an origin story. It charts the pilgrim's progress of brilliant, headstrong Endeavor Morse as he goes from an idealistic young Oxford cop to the boozing, vaguely misanthropic detective made famous by Thaw. Just as Better Call Saul is, in some ways, more interesting than Breaking Bad— so Endeavor offers more emotional richness than the series that inspired it. The new season begins with Morse returning to the Force after months away dealing with his drinking problem. Even as he investigates a murder at the Oxford Concert Orchestra, the world is shifting around him. His boss and mentor, Detective Inspector Fred Thursday, played by Roger Allen, is soon moving to a station in another town. Thursday's daughter, Joan, whom Morse has secretly loved for years, has gotten engaged to his hearty, mediocre colleague, Jim Strange. And ratcheting up the tension, there's a sudden break in a case that Morse and Thursday had investigated years earlier, nearly getting themselves murdered in the process. Morse has warned off reopening the investigation, which threatens some very powerful people. But do you think that'll stop him? Now, it's one of the comical quirks of the series that even though Morse is a genius who solves a brain-teasing murder in every single episode, his slower-witted colleagues still scoff at his ideas in every single episode. They don't quite grasp that, in addition to his eye for arcane clues, he's got a keen sense of the human frailties that can lead to murder. Here, Endeavor theorizes about a possible motive in one of this season's cases. Well, I think it's one of the uglier aspects of human nature, but even the least amongst us needs someone to look down on. It's a terrible thing to be disregarded. Destined to never be more than, at best, rank and file. To always be second choice. Second best. Second fiddle. Thaw's original Inspector Morse was your classic offbeat cop. He drove a vintage Jaguar, loved classical music, didn't suffer fools, and wallowed in whiskey-drenched melancholy. Watching some old episodes again, I was startled at how Morse also seemed to chase everything in skirts. The show couldn't get away with that now. 
Still, thought tooled around picturesque Oxford with such ravaged romantic panache that he was an alluring fantasy of the world-weary detective. At the same time, Morse and his story were static, and it's here that Endeavor is the superior series. What carries the show aren't the mystery plots. Their solutions are too clever by half. But the way it portrays Endeavor's spiritual education. Over the years, we see this honest, fresh-faced young man repeatedly stung by life. He's treated as a weirdo by colleagues, proves unlucky at love, gets betrayed by higher-ups, betrays his own highly rigid moral code, and sinks into alcoholism. He's condemned to a life of loneliness. While the show keeps returning to Morse's unrequited love for Joan, its heart lies in the quasi-paternal relationship between the troubled Endeavor and the blokish Thursday, a family-loving World War II veteran who's given real emotional heft by Alum's layered performance. Their last scenes together are deeply moving, not least because both are so incapable of expressing their feelings. Charged with an inescapable sense of loss, Endeavor's finale delivers the narrative closure and emotional weight that its many fans would hope for. Not that it's perfect. Perhaps hoping to please everyone, there are a few too many endings. Even so, the series has more than adequately fulfilled its mission in the Morse television universe. By the time Endeavor hops into his jag and identifies himself as Morse, just Morse, He's recognizable as the character we first loved in Inspector Morse. Over the course of a decade and 50 hours of TV, Endeavor has shown us the child fathering the man. John Powers reviewed the masterpiece mystery series Endeavor. The show's final season premieres Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on PBS. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, hundreds of leaders in the field of artificial intelligence recently signed an open letter warning that AI could lead us to extinction. We'll talk with New York Times tech reporter Kate Metz about the risks and benefits of AI. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support from Adam Staniszewski. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.B. Nesper. Teresa Madden directed today's show. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. This message comes from Schwab. It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in with Schwab Investing Themes, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Choose from over 40 customizable themes. More at schwab.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.